Okay, guys, welcome to The Lawyer's Daughter. I'm Jennifer Carroll and uh, Joseph D'Angelo's in jail. We have gotten through the sentencing. It is Tuesday, August 26th. I had to look because it's honestly, no, I think it's Wednesday. And what the hell day is it? I'm so confused. I need to now look at why it's Wednesday. See what I mean? I'm so out of it. I have never felt so exhausted in my life. In fact, I think I'm gonna go off the grid here a little shortly. I don't know, maybe next week just because i need to get a grip like i i my brain is fried and i have not been so tired in my whole life but there's a there's like brick a brick of stuff i want to share with you because i don't know about you guys but i'm not done there's stuff we need to still do and if you'll as long as you'll have me i will keep participating i tonight on i promise i'll go sit my butt in my chair outside and um in the living room and you can almost see that and uh, get the list together, get my website together, because what I'd like to get on there is the link to my survey, because I would love to give you, have you guys give me feedback on my podcast and what I'm doing here and what I could do better and what you'd like to still hear. And I know folks have already given answers, so I've got to go through that. Another reason I need to just shut down for a few minutes to come back out for, I guess, season three. That sounds so ridiculous. But um, come back with a fresh season of The Lawyer's Daughter After Labor Day, uh, as I'd be quiet for just a little bit, and then come back with um, more updates, more news. There are still things happening, but there, a lot of them are cleanups, but I made a list of everything I want to talk to you about. So this is the, um, it used to, in our house, we had like Friday free for all when we'd all come home for dinner and that would be the night with leftovers or whatever, because my mom never knew who was coming or going or whatever. I feel like this is Friday free for all, but it's Wednesday. So it's hump day. I don't even, I can't, I have no alliteration. It's gone. My power of speech has left me. Uh, so I want to tell you some of the stories from last week, just so I can finish up and, and, and tie some threads. And I, the Zoom meetings are scrums. Those of you that put up with listening to those, congratulations. There is often a good exchange of information. And my little comments in my statement about the um, six places D'Angelo was looking is absolutely based on what you guys told me on Wednesday. So thank you for making me look smart and sassy. I appreciate that. Could not do it without you. I say that all the time, but I truly mean it. Really, you guys are amazing. The stuff I hear and how I'm able to process what's important and things I need to pass along because everybody would enjoy it. Like, it's really just meant a lot to me. So let's start with it wrapping up last week uh, specifically. On Friday, uh, so just for those of you that are playing the home edition or may not have picked this up from the Zoom meetings, I got a chance to speak with Paul Holes privately. That was Wednesday. We were, I tweeted, it's time for me to make my move. Uh, no, Karen, I didn't jump him. Okay, I say that again, but it was just so funny because that's just so not me. I would never tell you people if I was doing that because I'm so bad at it and I would not want it to be public. Anyway, Paul let me yell at him and I did. So I wanted to circle back on that because that became a theme that happened on Friday. Also to remind your, to remind all of you guys, the Larry Crompton, Michelle Martin storyline, I'm going to give you an update on that one. And um, is there anything else that's top of mind? Those are the two big things I think from last week. I don't know if you guys could see it, but Phyllis was actually there on Friday morning. They wheeled her in in the wheelchair and I'm so happy she was able to come. So that was, a, that was a really great feeling. And I'm pretty sure the judge, I feel like the judge looked at me when he was reading the sentence for Lyman and Charlene, like he was making a real concerted effort from my chair. And I was, I'm pretty close when I get to, when I was in the ballroom, it looked as if he was trying hard to make eye contact with certain um, victims he had met the week, the week before. And in particular, because he could 
he could apply sentence to those of us with charges. And they did put us, those of us with charges, those are the felony crimes, the murders and everything, they put us kind of near the front. So he knew roughly where to look. Um, but, and so that, that was great. I want to say one more thing about that, that Friday, because I didn't write this on my list and I don't want to forget, is that I was blown away how well the district attorney from Ventura was on theme with what I had said on Thursday. It's like we planned it. I mean, I, I, I just went up to him and thanked him because they're electeds, right? They have to run for office and they're always more conservative than I am. That's going to happen every time because I was raised to be very liberal and very don't try not to judge, try to make room for everybody. That's just been a value in our family. I, I have been thanking my mom lately for really not raising us with a lot of racism. We probably had a tiny, tiny bit, but nothing like a lot of my friends have gone through that they've had to unlearn. I'm just lucky my dad and my mom just weren't particularly phased by differences among people. We weren't particularly hierarchical either in terms of economically hierarchical. Yeah, we were higher on the food chain, as you might say, because my dad went to college. But we, in Santa Paula, the town I grew up in, that is a agricultural town. And almost all of my friends, unless they were, came from my dad's friends, were Hispanic kids. And I was fine with them. Like they, I didn't, didn't mean anything to me until one kid finally said, I live in a big, rich house up on the hill. And that was the first time I had self-awareness. And that freaked me out. I, that when I heard that, I, th I want to say it was maybe fifth grade, when she said that, it floored me because I had never noticed, which of course, <laughs> welcome to white privilege, right? You don't notice that you have the privilege. That's some of the problem. So that was my first awareness of that. But I, I just really thank my parents for raising us in a home that's pretty, um, very liberal, but, but liberal, moderate, I would say fiscally moderate, much more liberal with regard to human rights and civil rights. That's not my point. My point was Greg Totten, the Ventura district attorney, who is more conservative than I, got up and did such a wonderful talk. And it, it was in his closing statement. And it was so in harmony with what I said that I, I was just, I, I was so grateful. I just went up to him and said, man, we showed up as a team and I can't even believe how well we showed up as a team. So that's not normal. It's just fortunate. It's, it's, I'm very fortunate to have a district attorney who listens. That's a big deal. And who saw me and who saw what mattered to me. And I think aligned in that regard, his tenor and uh, the choice of his words were powerful. And it was, his was the one about light and dark, light and dark, and that Joe actually loves the dark. And then we saw it. We saw it on the damn video of him in the prison cell blacking out the lights because I don't know what it is with him. I don't know if there's a defect or something where he just really is bothered by light, but he does not like that light. And of course, that's the world we all live in, right? I want to live in the world with you in the light. I want to sit in the truth. So that's where we are. So I have to, so a couple of funny stories from last week. I ended up staying through the press conferences and a little bit longer. I think I was exhausted. I didn't want to deal with people. Most, I was, I kind of like to always read the room and see what's going on. Uh, that's my curtain twitcher mark. I just like to know kind of what's happening. And I talked with a French reporter um, and uh, deep throated toss at him too. She, she was going to jump him, I'm telling him. This woman's out of control. Anyway, we, we did, I was doing all that, but I was basically by myself and I walked over to go to the bathroom. And now you have to remember we're at Sac State, this is the MU, the Memorial Union. It's basically dark because kids aren't there for school. 
uh, I don't know if they're going to be for, there for school. I think it would start this coming week if that was the case. But they aren't there for school. So it was, it's, it's dark. The MU is basically dark except for what we're doing in the ballroom. And I don't mean dark like the lights were out. I just mean there's not people around. So I was approaching the bathroom. I realized, gosh, there's not many people left. And there was a man sitting outside of the women's bathroom. And I said, I've watched now enough Criminal Minds to know, watch that guy, right? That's the guy. So I went to the bathroom thinking, this is the dumbest thing ever. I can't believe I'm in here by myself because I just sat through you know, toxicology 101 with the D'Angelo trial. And then I'm, and I hear the door open and a woman comes in and then, and I don't know it's a woman actually. I hear somebody come in. I'm like, uh oh, here we go. But they go in the stall and I hear them pee and I don't know, but there's a way women pee. So I'm like, okay, it's a woman. And then I heard another person come in. So I went out and washed my hands. Yes, I washed my hands. Everybody washed their hands, COVID. Wash your hands anyway, gross. Um, and the woman that was in there who was, um, oh my God, why can I not remember her name right now? And I can see it so clearly. She knows who she is. There's a picture of her somewhere. Uh, she's, she, I think, was the member of the general public that was in there. And we started talking. And then the other stall opens up and out comes Bonnie. And I've posted a picture of this somewhere. I, I'll have to post it again somewhere. Um, but she comes out of the stall and I have not met her. Well, the person I was with was like, hi, you're Bonnie. Nice to meet you. And I, then I turned and I said, hi, I'm Jennifer Carroll, Bonnie. We haven't met yet because we hadn't. Just in all of this, we hadn't met yet. And here we are alone in the bathroom, right, with this um, one other woman. And Bonnie goes, yes, I'm aware of who you are. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that I've shared with you, but I had heard through the grapevine that Bonnie cooks dinner for Paul Holes, so he's over at her house, and I'm like, oh yeah, I guess you have, you might have actually heard about who I was. <laughs> Just sometimes it cracks me up because I know actions have consequences, and I, you know, I put myself out there, and I'm fully prepared for the blowback because it happens. Um, but it was so funny because at first she was kind of that, I know exactly who you are kind of moment. And I'm like, oh my God, this is straight out of Dallas. Google it. Or Dynasty, even better. Um, these are soap operas from the 80s that a lot of us were really into at the time. But um, it was definitely like a Dynasty moment. But then she softened completely. And we ended up talking. And then we went out and we got another cute picture taken. And um, they, you know, it was really, it was good. I mean, it was good. And it was awesome because we were all kind of in the same color palette. So if you see a picture of four women in blue, that's the moment. And I'm with Bonnie. That's the moment, that post-bathroom moment. So I get out to the car and my, my MO, and I'm telling you this, but don't you ever stalk me, is my MO is I hide in my car. My car is like, ever since I've been a single mom and Katie's been, uh, like a student, no matter what I've done, I've, she's, all of her activities and everything, I always just worked in the car. That was just, I had a desk actually installed behind my driver's seat so that I could work in the car. So my car is like kind of my secret hiding place because I can be by myself. I can just take my time. I can cry, whatever I need to do. I would do it in the car. So I get to the car and I just need a moment and I'm going through text messages and I get one from uh, Michelle Martin it's actually from her sister-in-law who I adore. And it says, we ran into Larry Crompton. Now I didn't see Crompton there. I didn't know he was there Friday. I didn't know anything about that, but she ran into him outside of Sac State, the courtroom, right? She ran into him outside of the courtroom. So I, I immediately had to call because I'm like, holy crap, what happened? Well, now I'll share this story, but I'm, I'm, I, I do not, you do not judge anybody in this story because Human emotion it is an amazing thing, and it causes us to do all kinds of stuff we don't expect. And I'm not thrilled about how this went down at all, but I've had discussions, and I wasn't there. I didn't see it, and um, I think there's a lot to be learned from it. So I'm going to share what happened to the extent that I know, 
but again, I'm going to, I'm going to beg your um, indulgence to not judge because none of us were there. So Michelle approached Larry. He was outside by, we had a, the, the, well, the temperature they took at the door, but we had the check-in tent, the stupid thing that, you know, the, the check-in tent. It's not a real tent. It has no sides, but it's just that over, the thing you see it, um, you know, whenever you go out or you go to soccer games or whatever, that the awning thing that's, that you put up, those pop-up things. She was out there when he, she caught him and she said, she went up to him and said everything she needed to say. And this is where I won't characterize it, but she started to take him out. I don't know how it went down exactly, but I suspect at that point she had some energy behind it because she had had a lot of pent-up demand since 2010. So yeah, a good 10 years of pent-up demand. And she has felt so bad about herself because of what Larry wrote. So Larry's son, I guess, went to go get the car, but who was with Larry is Todd Lindsay from Unmasking a Killer. So apparently when Michelle came at Larry, and again, I'm, I'm be careful of my words because I wasn't there and I don't know what came at means, but she approached him and was, had a certain amount of energy. Todd then stepped in between them. Again, I'm characterizing it, but got in it. Todd got in it and said, wrong time, wrong place, wrong time. And Michelle, God love her because she's right, said, no, right place, right time. I was pretty disappointed that Todd got in it because these are the moments that as women, they're so hard. If, if men could only understand, and, and I'm just, I'm just going to explain this because I think men don't get it. We go through our lifetimes and it starts young. It starts really young where we start to get told, be quiet, not right now, let, just a minute, let the man speak. We get told all the time to be quiet. It, it comes across in all different ways. It even includes men restating what we say, right? Mansplaining. That even includes how much our words are taken from us. Everything about being sexually assaulted and everything about this crime for the rape victims has been, shh, don't talk, don't shit disturb, don't make a big fuss, don't, don't disturb, don't make a noise. We're going to, we're going to, we'll take care of you. You're important, kind of, we're going to get to it. Meanwhile, you know, statute of limitations, everything else. So if you could understand how it feels when you work up the courage, and this is something that can take it could take a decade. It can take a long time to work up the courage for a confrontation. Women, you, I know you say we yell at you all the time, but that's not a confrontation. That's us influencing you. I know you don't believe it, but that's how we influence because we don't feel heard. So our voices get louder. And if you notice, women naturally speak faster than men because we're always afraid we're going to lose the floor. We are convinced we're going to lose the floor. So we talk faster. So for me, the courage it took for Michelle to get to that moment where she could finally reach out and say what she needed to say to Larry, unedited, I don't care if she used the F word, and she probably did, doesn't matter. Todd's point of view, so this is important, so he said, not here, not now, and she pushed through. I, when I heard the story, I went ahead and said, Todd, a message, because I have a good relationship with him, and I actually really, really like the guy. I think he did a remarkably good job with unmasking the killer. And he has been such a victim advocate. Others may say it, Todd has been it, but he is very close to Larry Crompton. And so I sent Todd a message and I said, heard things went sideways. I want you to listen to my podcast. So I sent him the podcast and I said, I'm not asking you to decide tomorrow to dislike Larry Crompton. That's not fair. Plus you have a different relationship than with him than we do. But I am asking that you listen to this and then we can talk about it. So little did I know. So that, that's that moment in time in my car doing my thing. 
uh, go home. It, we, we had carols at three. Wait, was anything? Oh, I got you the Bonnie story and the Paul Hill story. Okay. So, uh, not Paul Hills, that's coming. I got you the Larry Crompton story. So then I was racing, racing to get to carols. I forget what slowed me down, but something did. I think it was that whole Crompton thing is what was slowing me down is that I needed to, I wanted to jump on it right away. I did not know when I got to Carol's that he would be there. So as I walked in, I noticed there was the table of folks uh, sitting in the dining room, which you can see on the Zoom for a second because I walked you in there for a minute. And then normally we always hang out in the back room, which is where I was talking on the Zoom at Carol's house. I thought Carol's thing was going to be for the survivors, kind of our last goodbye, you know, to say goodbye to the people, because so many people go back home far away. A bunch of us are still in Sacramento, and we'll, we'll continue to hang out and hopefully rally around what Chris is doing with um, supporting sexual assault victims. But we usually we go say goodbye, and we have a chance, and, and somebody had brought champagne. We had champagne. It's always weird for me to toast things like this, like, what are we really toasting here? Like, this is weird, but hey, I'll drink it. So I look and see Larry, he is having survivors sign his book. As soon as I got off the call, that's what I was noticing. I'm like, eh, don't come over here. I don't know if he knows who I am from Adam. I, I'm clear he hasn't heard the podcast yet. He may have now, but he hadn't at that time. But he did steer clear of me, probably because of the other stuff. But um, just make a mental note. I said the other stuff. I'm going to get to it. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> Jen, Jen, what are you doing to me? So. Larry was there, did not have a confrontation, but Todd came over, which I really appreciated. And that's why I want you to withhold judgment because I think everybody has a chance, everybody needs time to take in new information. And I'm asking Todd to take in new information. And that's essentially what he came up and said, we're still good, right? And I go, we're totally good. Like this is this, is this thing right here. I'm gonna hold it here in my hands. And I'm gonna tell you, I, I hold this thing as precious. And that is Michelle deserves dignity and Michelle deserves an apology and Michelle deserves that that stuff be stricken from the book. So I'm going to hold that as true and I can also be friends with you. And I'm going to give you the time to take in this new information because I'm sure as Todd sits with it, it too will make him sick because he's a decent man and I don't worry at all about that. We went through the rest of the afternoon. Um, Rosebud sang the song that I cannot download to share with you, but I'm going to do it. Pedretti has it. I just need to empty my phone so I can get that for you. But Rosebud sang the song, the song that celebrates Carol Daly and all the survivors. Really nice song. I, I, I really love it. It's just sweet to have one of the survivors create music for us. And then, um, and then we were getting ready to go. It seemed like I was there longer than I thought, but it, it's always interesting. I was talking with, there's a new um, victim, Tawny. She was a seven-year-old when he was in her house. And her mom was the one that was attacked, but she was there and she had to help fix things after he left. Like her mom was like, help, help. And she had to run out into the living room and help. And then um, there are a couple other people there I hadn't really gotten a chance to talk with before. So that was really special. Also, Rosebud's husband's awesome. I love him. He's super chill. Uh, you know, hippie, kind of like me. Uh, and then um, all of a sudden I'm, I'm getting free pizza because my daughter is nothing if not I'll eat free food kid. And I knew Carol would have too much pizza because Carol always has too much pizza. And as I was catching stuff in the kitchen, um, Paul Holes came over and he said, we're good, right? And I said, listen, Paul, here's the deal. You, he, oh, he said one more thing. Sorry, he did say one more thing. He goes, I thought a lot about what you said to me the other day about the power and responsibility. That's, I, that's me telling you what it was, but it was about that idea of that, you know, in his old job, 
Speculation is everything. When you're an investigator, I want a speculator. I want someone that comes up with a million hypotheses, right? Because that's really good thinking. In fact, I encourage lots of people to always have different hypotheses. It's a very good way to test your ideas. But when you pivot from law enforcement to celebrity, and I'm using the term celebrity broadly because he is often used as what I'll call an analyst, as, a, as, a, as an expert. When you make that pivot to expert, your speculation now becomes the voice of authority. And so that was my point to him, which is you can't just throw sh out shit anymore. It matters too much. What you say, people believe. They will not hear the nuance of you saying it could have been unless you do like I do. And I go, gossip, gossip, gossip. And I throw my hands up in the air and I make sure you know this is gossip. In this case, you know, I think Paul understood. So he goes, so we're good. And I go, hey, you let me come at you. I'm screaming and crying at you and I am calling you out and you let me do that. And you respected me while I did it and you listened to me. Yeah, you have my respect. That was an integrity move. That speaks to who you are. And absolutely, absolutely we're good now. So I, I wanted to follow you up on that one because that was a loose end and I wanted to make sure you knew that's how that resolves. So I guess I'll start you seeing my picture with Paul Holes now, but I wish I had a better picture. That wasn't quite so weird. Um, and then uh, one other thing I wanted to make sure everybody heard, I mentioned it Friday, but I want to just speak it loudly and clearly now in a non-scrum situation, is that it was not Jill Karen who told me, turned me into the police. I, I was convinced, especially as she came in so hot the other day, it was a customer at the Ventura bookstore. And what I explained, and I think hopefully you guys heard that, but um, that was my trig teacher. Yes, we got high together, but he also taught me trig at night when I worked for the Ventura Theater. He was amazing. And so somehow something I said in the bookstore that day, and he was a trusted adult for me, a very, very trusted adult for me. I knew his secrets, he was homosexual and he was a teacher. We kept that quiet, right? That was a secret. The kids knew. We kept it quiet from the adults because the adults were psychos. Um, the kids could care less. So he was a very trusted adult. He trusted me. I trusted him back. So I could have said anything in the Ventura bookstore that day, any kind of joke, anything. That's what made them um, with some customer called the police, and that's what made them look at me as a suspect. So whoever you are, customer, if you're still alive, coming. No, I'm just kidding. It's shit happens, right? It happens. What can I say? Did not know until last week that Deb Domingo went through some similar um, stuff. So yeah, welcome to we girls. We don't have the courage to confront you, but we can, we can murder. I just, whatever. Okay. So I want to clip that thing about Jill Karen, because that's important to me to get that fact straight. So, um, so over the weekend, came home, deal with fires, got my mom out, thank God, got my roommate out, they went to Oakland, and then now we're good. It's all good. Fires are still are still burning, but we have fog back. You can't even really see it in the window there, but we have marine layer. It's all the things you want if you have to fight a fire. Today, we look to Louisiana and Texas and say, oh my God, for the first time, they've used the word unsurvivable in terms of the flooding, which I'm kind of happy with because... You want to get somebody to some, take something seriously, say something's unsurvivable. That's got my attention. I think it's got a lot of people's attention. Finally, we're using words that matter. So to all of you in Texas, Louisiana, I hope you're listening to this afterwards and you're fine. We're all going to go watch in terror in a few minutes as this unfolds overnight. No, we have your backs and we are sending you so much survival thoughts. Yeah, just that's, we're so here for you. So hang in there, guys. Um, it's going to be rough and I'm so sorry. So aside from natural disasters, because welcome to 2020, 
I wanted to ch check in with a few things. I, I just spent um, an hour talking to Cheryl Temple, and so I'm going to tell you some of that stuff. Uh, I wanted you to know that I'm going to do this. I really debated whether I was going to do this this way, but I'm going to do it this way because I have been afraid to read it. So over the weekend, members of D'Angelo's family have started to speak out. Makes sense. He's put away. They have to start to come to terms with all of their feelings because now it's kind of finished, right? It's not even... There's no more ambiguity. It's clear what's happening now. Let me give you the quick update from Cheryl on that front, by the way. They are now shipping people out to the reception center. There are a few hundred, she said, ahead of him in line, but the line is moving. As of last week, it sounded like the line wasn't even moving. It's moving. And she, I love Cheryl. She's so funny. She doesn't like to say too much because she knows I talk and I'm always asking, like, can I share this? Can I share this? But she went ahead and checked on um, level four facilities and the two that look like they have availability and are most likely to be the future home of Joseph D'Angelo are, wait for it, wait for it, High Desert and Pelican Bay. So this should make my fellow survivors incredibly happy because I, while I didn't study the prisons all that well, because prison to prison is prison is prison as far as I'm concerned, um, that should make everybody very happy because those are two climate based on the climate alone, miserable places. So you can Google them, look them up, go check it out. But so with D'Angelo now being sentenced and waiting to get on his little bus, uh, so he might be out of Sac County Jail sooner than we thought, which is good because that reception, that intake thing is pretty miserable from everything I read. So, okay. So then, so what I'm going to do that I didn't, that I wanted to, I'm going to do here because I realize a lot of folks haven't heard this yet. Also, I don't know that I can read it by myself. Honestly, I really kind of want to read it with you. So I'm going to read the letter from D'Angelo's daughter. This, it'll tell you who she is in the letter, as I understand. It will make us not happy, as I understand. I've really hesitated to read this, but I wanted to share it with you, and I kind of didn't want to do it alone. So we're going to do this real quick, and then um, we'll keep going. Here we go. My father is, and this was filed at the court on August 24th, which is Monday. That was Monday. So that is why I'm good for her, by the way. Sharon Huddle did not need to file hers when she did. Um, also, this is bad. I'm going to say something so bad. Also, um, a friend said, if you read this letter and it makes you mad, just remember, Joe was the good parent. So by inference, my favorite word of the day, by inference, this might kind of, uh, apparently, all right, I'm going to segue before I even start this letter. Remember the note, we we're all waiting for the post-it note. What was the post-it note in the evidence? So here, I have it right here. Here's the post-it note that was in the evidence. Sorry, I have a piece of hair that keeps blowing on my face. Um, in the post-it note, it was not Joe's writing. It was absolutely positively a woman's writing or a girl's writing, a lacy a script kind of writing. The, the post-it note says, this is a sick man. God save me from being angry. Thy will, thy will, not mine, be done. And it's from the Alcohol Anon Alcoholic Anonymous Big Book. I believe I found it online, which is chapter five of the big book, uh, page 67, how it works. And the longer quote says, though we all did not like their symptoms and the way these they disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. We ask God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. 
when a person offended, when a, when a person offended, did something wrong, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry. Thy will be done. We avoid retaliation or argument. Okay, that's not from the Carroll household or the Smith household because we always had arguing, but that's the context. And um, the belief is from the law enforcement folks is that this is absolutely one of the daughters. One of the daughters had a um, substance abuse problem, very likely something here that that's what's related to. But I can see where this jumped out at whoever it was that saw the post-it note. Um, and she's not, and she's not even allowed to take a picture of the post-it note and give it to me. There's like some rules of evidence. Did you know they use a service called evidence.com? She was yelling at somebody in the office and said, check on evidence.com. And I'm like, there's evidence.com. It's this huge infrastructure by Axon, who is the people, who are the people, the technologists who make most of the BWCs, body-worn cameras. Uh, and so it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant, brilliant business model because the way evidence.com makes their money is you pay for storage on their service. It's not, apparently has a horrible user interface. Note to you, evidence.com, horrible user interface. It's so classic. But the way um, law enforcement uses it is you upload all your crap, all your digital files. It, it, I've been told the, the size of the digital files from BWCs, body-worn cameras, is massive. I mean, my phone is full and I'm not recording what I'm doing every minute. My daughter would argue I record enough. Um, but if you're, so every time uh, they download their BWC, that's a digital file that can be maybe a gigabyte. So you're loading mega gigs, terabytes up to this evidence.com and they're charging you for storage. And this is absolutely a budget item. I've talked with Ventura about this, about this budget item. And one of the things that happens in some jurisdictions is they, they go ahead and load all their stuff on there. And Cheryl said, it's horrible because the user experience is so bad. It's really hard to go find all the data that's been uploaded. So there's a little bit about the business model going on in the justice system. And I think it's interesting because, well, because of my Silicon Valley brain, I'm like, oh, we could go make that better too. And, and there should be a public facing side of that for those of us that want to see what the evidence is once it's allowed to be viewed. Maybe there is, but I doubt it. If they don't have the user experience right on the law and order side, I can't imagine they have it right on the end user side, consumer side, people like us. Okay, that's just some gossip about evidence.com, but um, and that's the catch up on the post-it note. So I owed you that, see, I did it. So let's go back to this, this letter is filed on Monday, which I feel was a good day because that waited till we were done. It's, you know, in the court record, this was these things, any statements, any and all statements are, um, are public record. You have to go get them out of the public record, but they are public record. So that's good. I mean, as I say all the time, there is so little about this case that will be available for historians. This isn't like a Bundy case or a Zodiac case or something massive. Like we just, all we have is our stories and a little bit of court time. So I think these letters help us start to understand the picture. So this is, here we go. Let's just do this. My father is Joseph James D'Angelo. I am his oldest daughter. I lived with him almost my entire life of 38 years. And my daughter lived with him almost her entire life of 15 years, I think, or 19 years. It's under the stamp, I can't read it. My father, the person that I knew and know today. I could never tell you all the things my father did for me because he always put me and my daughter first. All of our lives, there are far too many. He made my bed, my daughter's bed, clean, cooked, and did me and my daughter's laundry up until the day of his arrest at age 72. 
he is the best father I could have had. And this is hard. I knew this was going to be hard. He is the best father I could have had and my daughter could have had. He was my daughter's grandfather, but he treated her like his daughter. Anything my daughter or I ever needed, he provided. He was consistently selfless about caring for and providing for his family. As evidence of his selfless care for his family, my father worked seven years beyond his age of 65 of retirement. He did not retire until the age of 72, just weeks before his arrest. This was to enable all his children to have college graduate degrees, to make sure me and my daughter never went without anything and to give us the best quality of life. My father is a combat veteran who has fought for and saved American lives in Vietnam. Growing up, now, oh, I still want to tell you a story, but just bookmark that combat thing, okay? Just bookmark it. Growing up, I thought I had the best and most loving and attentive father in the world. He was and still is my number one provider and support system. I chose to live with my dad almost all of my life and for my daughter too, instead of living with my mother. The grammar, it's just go with it here. Even though my mother made way more money and lived in a much nicer home, I chose to live with my dad. Remember my comment about he was the good parent? Because my father was and still is the best parent, a loving, wow, I just didn't even, okay guys, like I did not, because my father was and still is the best parent, that's her superlative. Um, it, it, bear, it, it bears a reflection that that might be a comparison, a loving, caring, and present one. My father allowed me to make mistakes, but was always still there for me and always a good listener. He has always and consistently given me the best advice, knowledge, and guidance, and my daughter also. He protected me and my daughter every single day, all of our lives. The absence of my father today is a trauma that my daughter and I will never overcome. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to save my editorializing till the end. My daughter and I spent a lot of time with my father. His attention and care as a father was and still is his only priority in life. Okay, I'm gonna, we're gonna need to argue about that one later about priorities, but okay. The father I know and love is a good person. He is witty, humorous, kind, and intelligent. He has all the qualities of a good parent, role model, well, again, all the qualities? He has all the qualities of a good parent, role model, and friend. He has shown unconditional love for me and my daughter all of our lives. I admired my father and I looked up to him. He always protected me and always gave me his time. Anything I needed, he would take care of. Our house was always clean, food was always good, and we had anything our hearts desired. My father would do anything I or my daughter ever asked of him just to make us happy. He all, I'm gonna withhold editorial again. I'm like, well, <clears throat> I, I believe that might be true. Guilt is an amazing motivator. He always picked up my daughter and took her and her friends places all the time. He built my daughter a secure and beautiful mini house in our backyard just because my daughter asked him to for fun. My father has taught me to appreciate things in life and to be kind to both people and animals. Oh, he took care of he took care of our two guinea pigs with so much love and care and a rabbit I had growing up and my sister's horse she had growing up. We would always give them treats, clean and care for their cages and needs, built them bigger enclosures to give them a better quality of life. As a single parent, he consistently supported his family financially, mentally, physically, and emotionally every single day of our lives. My father allowed me to be my unique self and still loved and supported me. He let my daughter be herself and treated her as his fourth daughter because her biological father was never there for her. My father has had so many good qualities, I cannot express them all here. I am missing many. He was open-minded. He let me try things in life, and he would still be there for me and support me if they failed. My father always respected my values and opinions, even if they were different than his. My father always spent time 
quality time with me and my sisters, all of his children, his granddaughter, every day, all of the time. He always took us places, did things with us, played sports and games with us, and he knew how to have fun with us. He was always there for me. Okay, it's kind of starting to become really repetitive. Um, and it's interesting because I feel like it's saying the same key things, which I'll talk about in a second. He was always there for me and was present in all three of my college graduations. Clearly not in English. Uh, my best memories growing up were spent with my father swimming, going boating, and going places with him, or just being home with him as he fixed one of his delicious meals for me, having a good laugh, or playing all kinds of sports with him. I love my father so very much. My father always took the time to listen to all of his kids and have a good, easy chat. He was a fair disciplinarian, firm, but reasonable. He would make time to help me with my homework every night if necessary. I attribute much of my academic academic success to his good parenting. Again, I'm going to just notice that she is singling him out as being the good parent. Holy crap. <clears throat> um, okay. All of his children have college graduate degrees because he was consistently very present, supportive, and a good parent. My father is very loving. I know it sounds like I'm reading over the same sentences, but I'm not. These are new sentences. My father was very loving and very loyal. He would challenge me in a healthy and supportive way to help me grow so I could be the best that I could be. My dad taught me to be independent, how to learn how to face setbacks and conflicts in life. He taught me how to drive a five-speed and provided me with a car at 16 when I got my license to drive. My father could fix anything big or small, verbally or physically, so I always came to him for help, as did so many people we knew. He was and is the most helpful of anyone in my life or my child's life. Guys, sit with that. Sit with that powerful sentence right there. He was and is the most helpful of anyone in her life or her child's life. I got to tell you, if that, if that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about the context here, that is so incredible. It's also incredible because, as we know, no parents are perfect, but in this case, she is supposed to be writing of his character and why he deserves to some leniency. I mean, that's the premise, right? You deserve some leniency. Um, she continues, and it might be repetitive, but bear with me. My father has taught me the most lessons out of anyone in my life to mold me into a well-rounded member of society. My dad would sacrifice anything for his children and my daughter, be it his comfort or his life, anything for his fatherly duties. My father could be extremely tired from work, working, this is going to be a little hard to read. My father could be extremely tired from work, working a full-time hard physical labor job as a truck mechanic on hot asphalt until age 72, but would still come in to aid my, to, to address any situation or help me and my daughter. Okay. Again, she was barely born when he was super criming. My father is my protector. He was my main provider of security and necessities. He would put his own safety on the line to keep me and my daughter out of harm's way. My father has taught me the most about personal sacrifice and selflessness. He would show us on a daily basis that we are what matters most to him. He always, oh, this is killing me because can you imagine the betrayal if she ever, 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 ever stops believing this? Her sense of betrayal is going to be so deep and so wide. All right, let me just finish up because then we can talk about this. He has always cared for and helped his family, his parents, his siblings, and in-laws. My father would always give a compliment when deserved and provide anything to anyone in need. He consistently stayed in contact with people he loved and cared about and that cared for him. This includes a surrogate family that cared for him when he was younger and in need himself. And I believe that that's the guy we heard from in the statements, the guy who said he was, 
he used to hang out at his house and call his parents mom and dad. My father would show his kindness by doing a good deed for someone without asking and for no reason and taking the time to make someone smile and tell them to have a nice day. My father would help, I just made a face. For those of you listening on audio, I went like, interesting. My father would help them and do anything for them and he often did. My father took care of the people he loved, his friends and family, and he was always very generous and supportive. He would offer to help or fix anything for anyone. Again, we've covered this, but she's repetitive. I have witnessed him doing helpful things for other people all my life, so many things. For example, he helped my 91-year-old grandma, my mom's mom. Before his arrest, he built a ramp for her walker at her home. My dad would help anyone and was polite and kind to everyone. Okay, the superlatives at this point are becoming difficult because he wasn't polite and kind to everyone, but that's her experience. So we're gonna just give her grace. He did so much for our neighbors. He killed their dog. He had screws in his fence. But okay, let's keep going because this is how she, this is her paradigm, right? This is her belief system. He would fix anything again. Put in hours of his time and effort if only asked. My dad would share or offer to let our neighbors have any tools if they needed them for anything. He was always generous with his belongings and would help anyone we knew any time of day. My father taught me to think of others and to have empathy for other people who are struggling in life. Okay, we're going to need to call you out on that in a few minutes, but let's just hold that for later. My father had a very hard life. He never wanted any of his children to go without, as he had to go with, as he had to go without, or experience the suffering that he had to endure in his life. He, so he worked so hard to be the best provider for us. My dad has, my dad has so much kindness and love and empathy and support for others. My father has taught me to go to the extra mile to help anyone and to be kind to loved ones as he modeled that behavior. My dad always made the best out of every situation. He would apologize if he was wrong and he would make it up to me or my daughter. My dad would always say he loved us more than anything, but more than that, he showed it. My father always smiled and laughed with me growing up. Those are the best memories that I have and hold on to today. He would always be there to take away any pain or discomfort that I had any day, for example, while growing up at school. He also took me and picked me up and my daughter from up from school. And he would always take us out to eat or ask what we wanted him to make. Then he would go to the store, buy whatever he asked and make it for us all by himself. He always paid for anything we needed and was the best provider. He would do anything I asked within reason, and he was always reasonable with all of my requests. My dad, Joseph James D'Angelo, has made me and my daughter the happiest in our lives, which is why today, with him gone, we are the saddest. My dad is always there for me when I was sad, and I would always rejoice and give praise when I and he always would rejoice and give praise when I accomplished anything. My father has made me a better person, a successful person, able to contribute to society and help others in need in the community. My dad has taught me to appreciate life and never take things for granted. I cannot begin to express how much of a loss my daughter and I are experiencing right now without him present in our lives. Okay, I knew I needed to read that with you guys because, first of all, it's an incredibly um, interesting letter to me. I'm going to be an armchair psychologist for a minute. And I think the um, the letter is not particularly mature in its writing. As you've heard it repeated and repeated and repeated. It's interesting. And it repeated on the same things, themes. And, and one of the strong themes I heard there, first of all, it was her parent of choice. So, oh my God, that tells you what these kids had to choose between. Their mother, who's not their parent of choice, and their father. It appears by this statement and some others that we've heard that he could be present when he was with his kids and that I, 
it's absolutely possible he loved them. Um, some of the survivors say that he was using them. That was part of his persona, the act that he was pretending to be a father. I don't know. I have no way of knowing. But I do think what's interesting in listening to the themes in that letter is that you hear repeatedly that he was incredibly good at being custodial. And that means that he, he a parent, at a basic level, most parents are typically reasonable at being custodial. In fact, when they're not custodial, those are the cases that we hear about that we just all just sit there with our jaws dropped, right? Because a non-custodial parent has a kid in a cage, isn't feeding them properly, has deprived them of nutrition, is beating their children. A non-custodial parent is a terrible, terrible human being and has no business being even responsible for anybody. I don't even know how they're responsible for themselves. So it does appear that he was custodial in that he met their basic needs. Okay, good. Then I hear as a theme in there that he was helpful. Now that is that is disputed by his neighbors. I mean, there are neighbors that said he was quite mean and that he killed their dog, that he would throw stuff over the fence, that he was stalking different people. So I'm going to assume that she believed the persona that my fellow survivors think that he cast, that he, that he lived in, the person he became as a parent at home. He created this persona. It was of the being the good dad, clearly not hard compared to Sharon, I guess. I, I, I don't dare to impugn her other than by inference based on this letter, but it sounds like, you know, he was the, the more um, present parent, the less punitive parent, maybe. And I suspect he lived with I don't know that he has guilt. That's a hard one for me. But he may have had some sense of duty to them because he knew he was a real shit stain outside of the home. So I suspect the one thing he could do in this world was provide for his daughters and be there for them. And, and she speaks over and over again about him accepting her, um, which means to me as a parent, that means, you know, he had patience for her growing up and the mistakes kids make when they grow up as did I. Um, all of us go through those times when we get into substances or we pop off or we're just damn well not going to believe what our parents believe, whatever that is, that, that ability to get separate. And sometimes it goes sideways and sometimes it goes well. But as we separate from our parents, it sounds like he was capable of managing her through that and then um, was there for her as a single parent. It must have been huge that she had that kind of support. So I get it. I get like custodial and I get that he showed up where he needed to show up in the way he needed to show up. What I don't understand and why I think I feel really bad for these women is that I don't think they understand the gap that the, the man that they believed, the man whose behavior they believed was capable of these heinous acts. And I think, I think it's going to, I think it's going to blow up their brains if they start to understand how much he crimed, that he was relentless. And let me share. So I asked Cheryl the big question. This is for Bill Hardicon, wherever you are. I asked Cheryl the big question. Why, why do you think it was Dan and Charlene? Y'all ask me this all the time. And I swear, well, my eyes, because I'm like, I don't know. I think, you know, when you ask why somebody gets raped, it's the wrong question because nobody is hurt for a reason. I mean, I get the nuance. The nuance is why did the perpetrator choose this this opportunity, which is a way better to think way to think of it. Don't think about it. Why do they choose this person? Think of it choosing the opportunity. So if you say, if you're talking to someone who's been sexually assaulted, this is like a real important thing for me. If you talk to somebody who's been sexually assaulted, never, ever ask, why do you think he chose you? Because they're going to punch you in the face. 
That is a shaming question and it is a blaming question. And it comes from our old culture. Our new culture says, why do you think that was an opportunity he pursued? Now that speaks to the perpetrator and it speaks to how they view the world, which is opportunities. And Cheryl just explained to me in great detail, I didn't even know some of this stuff. Some of you guys on the pro boards might know this, but they believe he full on camped out in empty houses that were up for sale. In fact, potentially camped out in an empty house right across from the Maggiore's. Um, and, and potentially when your dad and Charlene, they have these empty houses they can see. Well, uh, also, I think um, Sanchez Domingo, I think that uh, Deb Domingo's family, I believe that also was, they, he, they believe he was literally living in an empty house. So while this young woman perceives her father, and this is way before she's, she's barely born, right? This is a long time before she's very old and would ever realize her dad was missing. Um, but he was gone. And so one of the things, wait, let me see if I get the, what was the thing that Cheryl said that was so interesting? Oh, why Dan and Charlene? Sorry, that was where I started this conversation. Um, why Dan and Charlene is that, and this is for Bill, um, she thinks potentially when they were up in uh, Citrus Heights for the, probably the 25th, no, 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 it's an even number because it's 1974. Probably the 1974 class reunion, my dad's class at San Juan, he was class of 1954. So what is that, the 30 year reunion? Could have been 35 year, what was that, 20? I can't do math. 70s, sorry, it's the 70s. That's right, it was 74. It was 54, okay, 20 or 25 year reunion. Never gonna be good at math, um, especially on camera, not gonna happen. So at the reunion, I, I'm pretty sure it was 1974 because I just seem to remember that picture. That's the one where Charlene's in that um, white dress with the blue, the blue stripe, the, the kind of cool haltery dress. Um, I'm pretty sure that that picture is from before they were married and they were married in 1975. I'm pretty sure, not 100% sure, but pretty sure. Anyway, neither here nor there, it doesn't matter because what, they, what Cheryl suspects is that one thing they did, so I, um, after the plea deal, I talked about like, it's like they had a rubric and then Cheryl confirmed they did have, I'm calling it a rubric. She calls it her 30 foot spreadsheet wrapped around the office. But essentially what they did is they, when we went through the crimes on the plea deal is they started to check boxes like um, oral copulation, uh, blanket over the TV, ate food. Like they started to check all the things these crimes had that were similar. So when Anne-Marie was asked on Friday, was there enough evidence and paid, this one's for you Paige, because I think you asked the question, was there enough evidence to convict without the DNA? Cheryl in particular, and she's probably the most experienced one out of all of them in capital cases, Cheryl feels very strongly there was absolutely enough evidence to convict on the felony charges based on what they had put together with this incredibly ginormous rubric. So one of the things that he did is that he identified his opportunities ahead of time. And he would, he had access apparently, all you sleuths out there, he had access to police systems. And I don't know quite what that means, but I can tell you what it did for him because I don't know what, where the systems would be and who his access was. He had access for quite a while where he could run plates, he could do reverse, um, think back, okay, 70s guys gotta go back. This isn't like today where we can Google a lot of stuff and do a lot of sleuthing. This is in the 70s. 
back then, if you needed that kind of information, you kind of had to be hooked up because you weren't going to be able to find that on your own unless you had a connection. So he was able to run license plates. He was able to get um, reverse look up to phone numbers to find addresses. He was able to find addresses from people if he had uh, partial names. So he had access. And then Cheryl says, essentially, at one point, then it finally dried up. So I don't know who was giving him access. You're fucking complicit and I'm calling you out right now. And if we find you, we will come for you. That's a promise. I guarantee it. We will come for you. And don't think that we're done looking because we're not. If you were the one that provided D'Angelo, Joseph D'Angelo access to those police systems, you are complicit. You are guilty of the murder of my dad and Charlene. Yep, just as guilty as D'Angelo, as far as I'm concerned. You don't do that shit. Don't do it. Okay, sorry. A little, slight, little bit of a soapbox there, too. So, um, I don't know, but she feels, she says it's as likely, <laughs> I love how she says it, it's as likely, likely that he discovered them in Sacramento, in uh, up by San Juan High, wherever that um, reunion was, up there in Citrus Heights area, as it is that he, that it was just random. She's like, I think it wasn't just random, actually, which is what Bill Hart kind of said every day. He bugs the crap out of me about it because he just is like, no, I know it, Jen. I know it. And you know what, Bill? Right at you, babe. Okay, so um, let's see. Anything else on the big thing? Oh, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, so I confirmed that D'Angelo can still be charged with other crimes. So he cannot be charged in the crimes to which he admitted, but he couldn't anyway. And he can't be charged in these felonies. So you're going to probably hear in the news, there could be a thread that says Ventura drops charges against Joseph D'Angelo. All the other charges that have been filed against him that are about the charges that he already pled to have to be dropped before he can move to the Department of Corrections. So I'm like, drop that sucker. Let's do it. I want to move him out. He needs to go. Please exit stage left. Get out of here, buddy. So you might hear words of, of cases being dropped. Don't worry. It's not anything that matters at all. Um, if there's a way to make the case in Visalia with those two women, that's going to be on Visalia. They're going to have to do it, but they can be, he can be charged for those murders. She absolutely says there is no connection at all from D'Angelo to Zodiac. Um, which leads me to a little bit of a left turn, and my right turn here. I'm going to turn over here to the right, and I'm going to let you know because it's important to me now. Um, there is a book coming out that I don't don't think that you should take a look at. I really, I'm not going to tell you not to buy it. I'm not going to tell you not to read it, but I'm just going to tell you move on. Um, so Deb Domingo and gang are trying to put our statements into a, I'll call it a compendium. I don't know what else to call it, but a way if he could just have the all the statements in one place which right now is kind of hard to pull together. I'm so mad at KCRA for putting them on Facebook because it's really hard to index things on Facebook. YouTube's set for that, but Facebook is bad. I'm, I'm actually lobbying KCRA to move those videos over so we can have a good clean list. But um, Ann Penn, the woman that is my grandfather, Lyman's dad's step-granddaughter, not affiliated with this case in any way other than that, is, I believe, publishing the same thing. If you had to spend your money on a compendium of statements, I'd much rather you buy it from the survivors because it's their work and they are public. Anybody can have access to them, absolutely, but it is their work. And I would very much like to honor the work of all the survivors. So that's my big um, whoopity-doo on that one. I just wanted to keep that in mind. Finally, oh, a lot of stuff to catch you guys up on, but there will still be more. Um, Let's see. Uh, yeah. 
the last thing is, um, I want so many of you have reached out privately and said, Jen, we want to do something for you. We know you're not working, blah, blah, blah. Okay, here's my deal. I don't like taking money. That's not what I'm here for. I don't mind earning money, but I don't like accepting money. I just don't want to commingle that. I'm doing this because I effing care about it and I'm not going to stop because I effing care about it. But there is something else I really, really love, and this will be the only time I mention it. So if you hear it here, that's it. I'm not going to talk about it again because I don't want to commingle things. But if you really, really wanted to do something for me and you wanted to help, I want to do it in exchange for something I do for you. So there's this thing I do called an ELI. It is a energy leadership index. It's part of my coaching. Yep. I'm shilling right now, but that's because I want to do this as a trade. If you go buy an ELI, and I need to go increase the price because I dropped the price so low, and now I'm, I won't make any money off of it. So I'm going to go slightly increase the price. Not a lot, just a little bit. If you do this thing called the ELI, first of all, I think you will get great value from it. You get to spend time with me, but we can talk about it. But we're going to talk about you, and that's the part I like the best. Because this ELI will help you understand how you... Um, how you show up every day, both when you are in the flow and having a great day and also when you are stressed. And I am doing it for two people right now who listen to this and I'm hoping they're going to write me a review so you guys can know it's worth it. But I think it's amazing. And um, I talked to you for a couple minutes before I give you the exam and the, uh, assessment and then you go do it on your own. And then we come back and talk for about two hours. I find it takes about two hours to get you through it because I really want you to have time to reflect on your own behavior and take on what I'm sharing with you so that you can internalize it in a way that's useful. We record it. You have access to it. It's all yours. But if that's something you really want to do, I'll go fix my website tonight. And I would, if you, if you feel like the need, you want to support me, that's a cool way because it lets me give you something back that I think, I think you'll really value and could potentially have a really good impact on your life. So it's called the ELI and, um, and, uh, Don will help me set those appointments. So if you want to email me, don't use the schedule and appointment thing. I got to take that down and I don't know how. I need to take that off because my calendar is so screwed up right now. But I, if you send me an email, I'll work with Don. We'll get you scheduled and we'll do that. And I hope that you love it. And if you do, I want you to talk about it because I love it. I mean, I could do these as a career. I love them so much. Um, I just think they provide so much valuable insight into who you are and why you make the choices you make and where you might want to start making different choices especially it's about energy it's how you show up so it sounds woo woo it's not i think the two people that i'm doing it for would tell you that's no, not and the people i've done it for in the past would say it's not woo woo it's um it's kind of amazing so that's my commercial i'm going to shut up now again not talking about it again this will live in perpetuity unfortunately but i just wanted to say that because i know folks I don't send me cash and cash app. I'm not going to accept it. You're not going to get to do that. Nope. If you want to send cash, get it to Chris. We're going to get that nonprofit going. So that's another way to contribute. We don't have it set up yet, but we're going to get working on that nonprofit so that we can fund her work there and maybe get her um, a webmaster who can help her uh, extend her reach. And then she wants to set up a retreat center. And if there's anybody on the planet who can set up the right retreat center, it's Chris Pedretti. Oh my God. All right. Love you guys. Could not do this without you. I say it all the time, but I swear to God, you should hear what I tell Cheryl the stories from you guys. Like I go, you don't even know. Here's what other people are talking about. Here's how how it went in. It just it's it's been tremendous. So we're not going to stop. We're not going to stop. And I will talk to you soon. Have a good Labor Day weekend. I'm going to go dark for about ten days, and I'll be back. And uh, I'll talk to you on the other side of Labor Day weekend. Stay safe, everybody. Please go talk to one another, love one another, and I'll see you on the other side. Venture a highway
Stronger 